You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Few presidents would see the kind of goodwill extended to them as the fifth president, James Monroe, would. Sure, presidents come in with a strong group of friends in Congress sometimes. Others scare their opponents so much that they get their way. Monroe was not a victory of partisanship, but of nonpartisanship, something rare in American history. The Secretary of State, chief negotiator of the Louisiana Purchase, the former minister to France, and a solid Jeffersonian Republican in his time, even an opponent of the American Constitution at one time, recently made a hero by becoming Secretary of War in the aftermath of the British invasion of Washington during the War of 1812, taking office just in time to see the British repulsed at Baltimore, on sea and on land. There was token opposition to Monroe within his own Republican Party caucus, from the Georgian William Crawford. But for the most part, the charming Virginian won over his caucus, and many Federalists too. In the end of the war, with Federalists and Republicans joining forces to defend the capital and country from a foreign power. Many thought it was the end of parties in America. The era of good feelings, one Boston newspaper called it. And that would sum up the hopes of the 58-year-old man who became the new president in 1817. He was sworn in outside, with 8,000 people coming to see him, the first president to do so. Quite a crowd. It was not his choice, however, to be sworn in outside. The Capitol had been burnt down in the recent invasion of Washington, and it had not been rebuilt yet. Monroe would establish a tradition of presidents taking the oath of office outside that was to last for many other presidencies, long after the building was repaired. The executive mansion, where Monroe would move into, was also burnt down in the same invasion and had been coated in white paint to cover up the fire damage to the exterior of the building. Around the District of Columbia, it started to be known as the White House, though this was not a term that would be used nationally until far later. In his address, James Monroe sought to reach out to all Americans, like many presidents, he invoked bipartisanship. He called for a oneness and said that Americans were tired of the follies and the factions. Taking a step away from the more conservative Jeffersonian politics, he encouraged the building of roads and canals across the nation. For a Secretary of State, he chose John Quincy Adams, the nation's foremost diplomat and the son of a Federalist president, John Adams. Of course, John Quincy Adams had since joined the Republican group. Despite suggestions from Andrew Jackson, the top military commander and hero of the battle to defend New Orleans in 1814, despite his suggestions to reward Federalists 
with offices. There was still enough party in this post-partisan president to ignore that particular suggestion. Monroe picked, with the exception of Quincy Adams, who had actually converted to the Republican Party, all Republicans. William Crawford, as we mentioned, he made his Treasury Secretary. When he offered the War Department to Henry Clay, the current Speaker of the House, Clay refused. It was an omen of some bad things to come. After considering Andrew Jackson for his Secretary of War, but not wanting to appoint a person who might become a future rival, he settled on the 35-year-old John C. Calhoun, starting what would be a long career in American politics for the South Carolinian. Long before Lincoln's team of rivals, Monroe had some interesting shipmates. Once he had taken the oath, and his cabinet was sworn in, and a few policies adjusted, Monroe did what any president could be expected to do upon taking office. He set off on a trip. Since New England was home to the other party, the Federalist states, he decided to hit there first. Not lost to anyone was the analogy to George Washington's tour that he took after his first year as president up to New England. Republicans and Federalists outdid themselves to honor their president. In fact, in one case, a party of Federalists led by Harrison Gray Otis, a Massachusetts Federalist, literally outpaced the Republicans to meet Monroe before the Republicans did in Rhode Island. Everyone toasted Monroe. It was an extremely successful presidential tour. He spent July 4th in Boston, breakfasting with the governor and with former President John Adams. He visited Old Ironsides, the U.S. Constitution, the ship that had sunk many British warships. All were captivated by his agreeable affability, wrote Abigail Adams. Like Washington, Monroe paid for the tour out of his own funds. It was a big hit, and the newspapers celebrated the visit of the new president touring the country. But not all were pleased. Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House, called it a pomp and ostentatious parade. Henry Crawford said it was a visit to the land of shady morals, as the Georgian viewed the northern states. These were the days before the red phone, before the war rooms, before day-to-day crises in the White House. Monroe spent the rest of the summer traveling and then visiting his own home of Virginia before returning to Washington. She did not reach until September. But at that time, he would unveil his agenda. It was a year of some development in 1817. Congress split the territories of Mississippi and Alabama. Work began on the Erie Canal, which would link New York to the Great Lakes. Mississippi would become a state. American settlers in Florida and Seminole Indians would begin fighting. Monroe's first year coincided with revolutionary movements in South America, Colombia, Venezuela, Mexico, Peru, a nation known as Buenos Aires, not yet called Argentina, where the insurgents in these countries were on the brink of expelling the colonial power Spain. Congress, led by Henry Clay, wanted to recognize the new countries. They wanted to do everything they could to support other democracies that, just like we had, were trying to fight for democracy on this this hemisphere. But Monroe didn't want to rush. 
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. So he praised the revolutionary spirit in South America, but didn't want to recognize any of the countries yet. This annoyed Clay a bit, but not as much as what Monroe would do next. He did something fairly radical for 1817. He publicly declared his suggestions for what Congress should do. He asked Congress to fund pensions for Revolutionary War veterans and to repeal special war taxes created for the War of 1812, now that there was peace. He also recommended a constitutional amendment so there would be no issues as to whether it was constitutional for the federal government to spend money on roads and canals in the future. In this way, Monroe was prescient, for the issue would come up during Andrew Jackson's term. Congress easily passed the first two items on Monroe's agenda upon the beginning of the Congress's business in December 1817. No one would vote against revolutionary war pensions, of course, and repealing taxes then and now was always a popular idea. But the last one, the constitutional amendment to allow the federal government to build roads and canals, brought anger. Not everyone felt that a constitutional amendment was needed. But that really wasn't the important issue. More importantly, who was Jimmy Monroe, the president, the man in the White House, the executive that was supposed to follow Congress's orders and implement Congress's policies? Who was he? to tell Congress what to do. The president is invading the rights of the states, said George Tucker, congressman from Virginia. But he wasn't the only one. The Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, in a dress rehearsal for his future battles with Presidents Andrew Jackson and John Tyler, rose now to blast President James Monroe. The Constitution, Henry Clay said, enjoins the president to state his objections upon returning a bill. But, Clay said, for the president to speak out before a bill was presented to him to try to tell Congress what to do was the beginning of a royal progress. But James Monroe was not John Tyler. He certainly wasn't Andrew Jackson. He wasn't going to respond in loud, boisterous terms. No, Monroe said. He only made his suggestions because it was only fair that Congress be informed of what he might do. Nonetheless, his constitutional amendment for roads and canals was not passed. But the sense of Congress was that roads and canals could be accomplished by the federal government, and so an amendment wasn't needed. In foreign affairs, James Monroe, as the former key diplomat and the minister to France, found his place. And throughout his presidency, this would be a big area of achievement for him. In 1817, there weren't as much solid accomplishments but one could see the road being paved. He did tighten up the formality a bit. He allowed no unofficial visits to the White House from diplomats, as Jefferson and Madison had done. While Monroe was a diplomat, was the key American officer in France, he had learned from the French that in France and in England, American presidents were ridiculed for their informality. The fact that Jefferson would take anybody into the White House and talk to him 
didn't help prestige. Monroe held more official state dinners, but he stopped the process of having the First Lady visit Washington ladies at their homes, mostly because Mrs. Monroe was sick and couldn't do it. Instead, his daughter held parties in the White House drawing room. The most important actions in foreign relations that Monroe took were the relations with Spain. To the anger of Clay in Congress, Monroe declared neutrality in the battle between Spain and the insurgents. And there was a method to his madness. We are now at liberty to act in the interest of the United States, Monroe said. Monroe wasn't supporting Spain or the insurgents out of goodwill. He wanted something. It was for national interest. He wanted to buy Florida from Spain. And declaring for the insurgents against Spain wouldn't help. He would accomplish the purchase of Florida in 1817, but the Monroe administration would later. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. In the end of 1817, a problem occurred off Amelia Island, off the coast of Georgia. It had been taken over by pirates, and they were raiding American shipping as well as Spanish shipping while helping the insurgents. In late 1817, Monroe and John Quincy Adams made the decision to send an American general there in order to restore order on the island. And then also at the end of 1870, he found the need to restore order near the border of Florida. Because his generals were busy with the Amelia Island affair, Monroe chose Andrew Jackson to lead the expedition to restore order on the border of Florida. That would end up being one of history's great conflicts between presidents and generals early on, as Andrew Jackson would go a little bit too far. But that was later. Now is 1817. And Monroe had established his first year. A mix, in a sense, accomplishing some of his goals, most importantly, the image of a post-partisan president. Monroe, of course, would be re-elected in 1820 with no opposition, no opposition to speak of. He would win all but one electoral vote, cast only, we believe, to defend the record of Washington. Politically, it was a coup for Monroe. Even after an economic crisis, he was still re-elected. But he would not escape the rivalry of Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House, and he would face problems on the foreign policy front, which he would confront with skill. Monroe is sometimes a forgotten president, but an important one for several reasons. One is that Monroe established American power in international relations. He strongly advocated America's first standing army. National honor, he said, was important property for the nation. Coming after the War of 1812, he was one of the first Union presidents, where all the states in the Union were really behind this new nation, as almost more important than their individual states. Democracy, as we mentioned, was starting in Latin America, Jose de Saint Martin had defeated the Spanish in Chile and then in Peru. 
Monroe's presidency is sometimes forgotten, but in foreign policy and in his dealings with Congress, he established much of the precedent of the presidency. By thinking a little bit out of the box, than at least his Republican predecessors, Jefferson and Madison, had. I want to thank you for listening. The website is myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and we're at Facebook. There's a My History Can Beat Up Your Politics fan group on Facebook and you can go through the website to link to that or find it on Facebook directly. Also a reminder, the archive of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics with podcasts going back to 2006 is available on the website for a reasonable fee along with your purchase you get history and demographics pick the president 2008 a look at the 2008 election and a special podcast on representation an important concept in democracy thanks for listening as a longtime foreign correspondent i've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.